Are you trying to create a podcast but don't have the money for all the equipment it takes? Maybe not so great with all the editing? Not sure how to distribute your podcast once you have everything recorded? Well, look no further because Anchor is here to help. Anchor is the easiest way to make podcasts. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your computer or phone. Anchor will also distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. And best of all, it's free. We looked at so many different distribution websites before finding Anchor and wish we had found it sooner. They even set you up with sponsors they think will fit the vibe of your podcast, which you can accept or decline at any time. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Happy podcasting! Hey, you want to grab a drink? It's Sierra Lawson and Lily Bishop, and you're listening to Morbidly Intoxicated. This week, I'm going to talk about the case of Kitty Genovese. Catherine Susan Genovese, known mostly as Kitty, was born July 7th, 1935 in Brooklyn, New York. While in high school, Kitty was described as bright and fun-loving. She loved to dance, would play hooky to go to the beach, and was in general described as a cut-up. In the documentary The Witness, a classmate named Elsa Metchek said that Kitty had many friends and everyone wanted to be a part of her group. She was known as, quote, the head of the pack. Kitty graduated high school in 1953. A year later, Kitty's mother witnessed a murder and decided the city was too dangerous to live in, so she moved her family to Connecticut. However, since Kitty had recently graduated high school and was over 18, she decided to stay in Brooklyn and prepare for her upcoming wedding to a man named Rocco. It's believed Kitty accepted Rocco's proposal to appease her parents. Though her family may have suspected, they would never admit that Kitty was actually lesbian. It's suspected that this led to the eventual moment from Rocco after she refused to consummate the marriage. Good for her. <laughs> this was the 1960s. Good for her. Yeah, be- being gay wasn't... It was illegal. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Which we'll get into. <laughs> uh, by the late 1950s, Kitty was working as a bartender and bar manager in Brooklyn. However, during her time here, she got caught bookmaking. Book? Bookmaking. Uh, bookmaking? She, yeah. Like gambling. Oh. I thought like... <laughs> I thought you meant like... Like it's, in the book... Like no, in the... In 19 the mo- boys in, no, in like the TV show You, where he goes and he makes... Like, like make he makes books. the books. No, no. Okay. No. Okay. I was about to... <laughs> No bookmaking. He's gluing spines. (laughs) She had been playing middleman, taking bets from patrons and passing them to a bookie. Kitty was fined $50, which is roughly $400 now, and in turn lost her job. A little known fact is that the famously known picture of her is actually her mugshot. So I'm going to show you. Yeah, I've never seen... This is the photo that, like, you'll see if you type anything into Google about her. Okay. And so later on they figured out there's, like, a larger version, and she has, like, a string around her neck that you can tell is, like, the... The sign from the mugshot. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I've never heard about this case. Really? I know nothing. Yeah. This is like a huge case. So, a few years later, Kitty met Mary Ann Zalanko. The two met at a bar and hit it off immediately. Mary Ann was quoted on the witness saying, I fell completely in love with her. Together, they moved into an apartment in Kew Gardens inside of Brooklyn. And Kitty had a dream of opening an Italian restaurant, so she began working double shifts at the bar that she worked at. Now for the tragedy. <laughs> 
On the night of March 13, 1964, 28-year-old Kitty Genovese closed up the bar she worked at at around 2.30 in the morning and began to head home in her red Fiat. On her way home, she made a routine stop at a traffic light. As she sat there, she was spotted by a man who began to follow her home. When Kitty neared her house, she parked in her usual spot at the train station, 100 feet from her apartment door, which was located in an alleyway at the rear of the building. The man parked his car at the bus stop in front of her and watched Kitty as she got out. As she began to walk down the street, he exited his car and followed her, concealing a hunting knife in his coat. Seeming to notice him, Kitty headed towards the street at the front of the building instead of the entrance, possibly in hopes there might be people or knowing that there was a police call box at the end of the street and hoping she could reach it in time. Unfortunately, the street was empty given the hour and halfway down it, the man approached Kitty from behind and stabbed her twice in the back. Kitty fell to the ground as he continued to stab her, screaming out in pain. She yelled, oh my god, he stabbed me, help me. Across the street, you're gonna love this. This is where it gets horrible. Great. Across the street, a doorman saw the man attacking Kitty and went downstairs to grab a baseball bat. However, seeing his cot in the corner of the nap room, he realized he was extremely tired and went to bed, deciding it was best not to get involved. What? (laughs) What? Mm-hmm. What do you mean he went to bed? He's he, tired. <laughs> he just got halfway downstairs and he's like, nah. Yep. What? That's the statement he gave to the police. <laughs> what? Yeah. He was the overnight doorman and he had like a little nap room downstairs and he saw it happening, went down there to get a baseball bat and then he was like, eh, I'm pretty tired. It's best not to get involved. Actual statement to the police. <laughs> A few minutes later, Robert Moser opened his window and yelled down, Leave that girl alone. Scaring the attacker, he ran off in the direction of his car. Kitty struggled to her feet and headed back the way she'd come, rounding the corner towards her apartment. She managed to open the door to her stairwell before collapsing inside. Back in his car, her attacker watched as Kitty stumbled her way around the corner and out of sight. Waiting a while, he saw and heard nothing. He switched from the beanie he'd been wearing into a fedora in case anyone had seen him, and with no one in sight, slinked back out into the night, heading in the direction he'd seen Kitty walk. Not sure where Kitty had gone, the man went back to the train station. Finding the doors locked and no one around, he exited the station and headed for the back alley. Eventually, he came upon the stairwell and, yanking the door open, found Kitty bleeding at the bottom of the stairs. He began to stab her again. What? (laughs) Yeah. Why? (laughs) Why? Because he wanted to murder someone. How long had this been? Uh, we'll get over that. Okay. A neighbor of Kitty's, Carl Ross, was up late into the night reading and drinking and was drunk by the time he heard the first screams. One of the windows in his apartment faced the front of the building, directly above where Kitty was first attacked, but he chose not to investigate. The screams eventually stopped and he brushed the whole thing off. Nearly 20 minutes later... 20 minutes. (laughs) Nearly 20 minutes later, Ross heard more screams and muffled cries, this time coming from the back of the apartments. Finally curious, he went down the hall and cracked the stairwell door open, just in time to see the attacker plunge the knife into Kitty yet again. Terrified, Ross closed the door and ran back to his apartment. There, he called a friend to ask for advice, and that friend told him not to get involved. Or call the police. (laughs) Was 911 a thing in the 60s? Not at this time. What? Yeah, this case, which we'll get into later, this case actually helped push that that concept into place. So how did you contact the police? You called the station number. So call the station number. (laughs) We're going to go over all of that, girl. There is so much going on here. I I don't like that she was so popular, but everyone was like, oh, kitty? Nah, I'd rather not get involved. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That kind of adds to the fact that, like, no one did anything back then, even if they liked you. Sad. What did they do to the people who they hated? Nothing. They were like, well, I never... What? They were doing the stabbing. (laughs) (laughs) They were the ones murdering. Oh, my God. 
Um, Ross hung up and called his neighbor who told him to come over and they'd figure out what to do. As Carl Ross, too afraid to leave his front door and risk running into the attacker, crawled from his balcony across the roof and into the neighbor's apartment, the man continued to stab Kitty before raping her, stealing $49 from her wallet, and walking calmly out of the building and back into the night. From his neighbor's apartment, Carl Ross decided to call yet another neighbor who he knew to be close friends with Kitty, Sophia Farrar. He told her that Kitty was at the bottom of the stairwell bleeding. Unlike many others, Sophia jumped into action, throwing on her coat as she ran out of her apartment towards the stairwell. When she got there, she found Kitty drenched in blood, but alive, and held Kitty in her arms, screaming for someone to call the police. Finally, somebody's doing right, something. Like, <laughs> like, what is what? this, the third, fourth time's a charm? Right. More than that. Uh, glad somebody was finally like, oh, my friend, I need to go right, help them. exactly. <laughs> and all these people knew her, like, she was friends with Carl Ross who looked down on someone plunging a knife into her and was like, oh. I like that he he was like, I don't want to get caught by the killer, so I'm just going to crawl across my balcony. Yeah, he crawled across the balcony onto the roof and then onto the neighbor's balcony, and they let him in that way. <laughs> that sounds so convoluted. Yeah, a big thing, too, is that he was drunk at the time, but I'm like, how did he do that drunk? drunk? Yeah, and also, I've been... And I've been in situations where I've been intoxicated and, like, shit hit the fan. You sober up quick. I don't know what you're talking about. Unless you have, like, really bad instincts, maybe. But if I saw someone stabbing another person, I think I'd be like, oh, my God. The joke here is, oh, you've been intoxicated. <laughs> Morbidly. <laughs> no, because no one died in my scenario. Knock on wood, I <laughs> When she got there, she found Kitty drenched in blood, but alive, and held Kitty in her... And held Kitty in her arms, screaming for someone to call the police. Incoherent due to blood loss, Kitty was still swinging her arms defensively as Sophia tried to reassure her that she was there and everything was going to be fine. Later in the news article, Sophia was never mentioned, even though she testified in court. Kitty's family never knew the details of her case. Her death took an extreme toll on her mother, and because of that, her siblings would throw out any newspapers that came to their house describing what happened. What they did know led them to believe that Kitty had died alone in a stairwell, unaided by any of her friends. Years later, when Kitty's brother Bill decided to dig into her case and found Sophia's testimony, it gave him great comfort to know his sister hadn't actually died alone. Okay, I've I've got a question. Did they think that her and Sophia were... No, because she's living with Marianne, her girlfriend. I didn't hear that part. <laughs> said it. They met in a bar and they fell in love. Okay. I and they lived together. No, she lives with Marianne, her girlfriend, but only some people knew that because it's illegal to be gay at the time. Okay. I wonder why her testimony got thrown out. So, so in the news, basically, anything that made it look like someone had actually done something, they threw that out. Why? Because they wanted it to be a better story. Which what? We'll, which we'll get into later. Okay. <laughs> Upstairs, Carl Ross finally called the police, who arrived shortly after. At the time, average police response time was two minutes. It had been over a half an hour since Kitty was first attacked. I mean, two minutes is pretty good, though. That's insanely good. Yeah. <laughs> and he heard the first screams. My thing is, how are you going to hear somebody scream and not call the police? All these people, the, they, they did it. <laughs> Apparently, it's possible. Yeah. It seems crazy. I think it seems crazy now, but also in the 60s, it was very much a, like, don't get involved. You don't want to be a part of all that. Well, you know what? Sort of thing. Sidetrack. Because my, my grandpa was born in 32, right? Mm. And he was telling me a story about how, like, people just left their doors unlocked. In California. In, yeah. like, I think he grew up in Pasadena. Left their doors unlocked. He would go knock on strangers' houses and ask to come in and help them fix whatever. Yeah. Or ask for a ride home. Like, 
Yeah, that was the whole thing. The 60s, too, though, 60s New York wasn't, like, the greatest place. No. There was a lot of turmoil, and so at the time, people just didn't want to get involved. Um, There's another thing in, in The Witness. Sophia's son is quoted saying that a lot of his neighbors had, like, numbers tattooed on them because they escaped concentration camps. So a lot of it was probably that they didn't want to get involved because they they just didn't want to get involved because there could be prejudice with the police or they're scared. You know, they don't really trust authority figures. Right. So Well, because, I mean, even now there's still people that are like, yeah, Hitler. So, like, (laughs) you don't know. (laughs) So only, like, um... What's that, like, 15 years? Yeah. Like, 20 years, because it was, like, 60, almost 65, so. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there definitely had to be people, yeah. white supremacists at that time. Yeah. Um, they're, yeah. obviously, after everything they went through, they're not gonna no. be inclined to trust someone in uniform. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, he said, he had a theory that that could have been part of it, too, of yeah. why a lot of people didn't do anything. That makes more sense none of it's supposed to make sense <laughs> no but i mean it makes more like more yeah that sense. one i could understand that one a little more right katie genovese died in an ambulance on the way to the hospital due to asphyxiation caused by a stab wound to her lung so now i'm gonna go into debunking the reports okay so in the news the biggest story was like they said 38 witnesses stood by while a woman was stabbed and did absolutely nothing. 38 and 38 witnesses that was like the big number that it came about, like, once, and the news ran with it. So it wasn't actually 38 people, first of all. I was going to say, wasn't it, like, four? <laughs> yeah. Right now, it was four that, that we know of. Okay. But it wasn't actually 38 people. So at the time the case happened, and even today, many articles widely exaggerate the events of the case. Most people were ear witnesses and didn't actually see what happened. There was a bar at the end of the street on the corner, and many times people living on that street heard rowdy customers spilling out in the early morning hours. Most people remember hearing shouting, but not actually anything coherent, and thought it was a lover's quarrel or a drunken brawl, and went back to bed. This detail was never released in the news. So it's kind of like when you're in your neighborhood and you think you hear somebody screaming, but you're like, yeah. no, it's probably fine. Right, like here there's like a bunch of kids in the surrounding apartments, and so I'll hear screaming at night, and I'm like, I'll just sit there, I'm like, okay, what kind of screaming is that? I can tell it's not like an eight-year-old boy, but... <laughs> You're like, they're probably fine. It's right. Just like- I'll normally look out, though, like, if it continues, I'm like, okay, hold up. Right. But a lot of times kids go swimming, like, the pool's right across from us, and kids go swimming at night, and they're, you know, hollering in the pool, and I'm like, are you being murdered, or? They're <laughs> just having fun. Know, right? Yeah, so it's stressful. There's a little park next to the church by my mom's house, and kids will go out there at night, too, and I'll just hear piercing, ch- like, childish screams at night. I'm like... You're like, what the hell is that? Should I call? I don't know. Should I call? Because, so that's, yeah, they just heard, like, incoherent shouting. Um, Okay. So they just thought that it was a lover's quarrel or something. Some of them, some of them looked out the window and saw, like, a man and a woman and heard the commotion, but they couldn't tell what was actually going on because it was dark. Right. So a few people who actually did see something saw either a man leaning over top of a woman Two people struggling or a woman stumbling away and thought that she was drunk. Not uh, stabbed. I don't... Right. Your first your first thought's never, oh, she's stabbed, unless you're... Right. Unless you're us, probably. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, no witness saw the attack entirely, though the doorman saw the first part and Carl Ross saw the second mm-hmm. My only problem with this um, whole lover's quarrel thing is Kitty was screaming, oh my god, he stabbed me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know how that... But to play devil's advocate, depending on how far away they are, like, I can barely understand people, like, when they're standing next to me, I just, like, I don't hear very well. Yeah. And so maybe 
they were further away maybe they couldn't like really understand so like they just heard shouting right I don't know. right so a lot it was like 3 30 like 3 3 30 in the morning at this time so a lot of people woke up to it so i get get that a little bit like oh. they couldn't really like understand what she was saying because they were also groggy yeah they were like half but asleep. a lot of the reports of people who did understand what she was saying and did nothing like remember her screaming help help me he stabbed me So, an interesting thing that happened in the documentary The Witness is her brother actually hired a voice actress, or he hired an actress to literally go out into the street and scream. Like, they went to her exact street. So, she's screaming out in pain on the street at night, and it, it was so loud. So, if that's, like, how it actually happened, I find it hard to believe nobody understood she was screaming, he stabbed me. That's fair. Yeah, and then she, like, she does it the whole time. She's, like, walking around the corner and into the stairwell and all of it. So, I'm, like... Um, was there no police station nearby? Okay, so that's another part of it. There was a call box at the end of the street. So, where no one really knows, like, what happened is when Kitty was attacked the first time, she turned back the way she had come from and went around her building that way. Instead of going forward to the police box. To the call box. Yeah. Right. Which. Did she know It's just that? unfortunate. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to guess since she lived on the street. Think like the TARDIS. <laughs> right. So it's like a big call box at the end of the street. Well, I mean, that's. Be that big, actually. That's really what, that's actually what the Hold TARDIS on. was designed off of, right? It's, a, right? it's an actual police call box. Yeah. So I don't know. Okay. So in the U.S. they looked similar, but if anything, it would have been small like this. Okay, but so it's, it's still a bright blue giant box thing. Right, so it's not something, it's not like like a phone on a pole. Like, you yeah. know how sometimes when you get stuck on the side of the road and you walk down like a they mile They have like or the two, tiny call boxes. They have a tiny call box, yeah. So it wasn't something like that. So she had to have known that there was that big blue call box. Yeah. Even if it's like half the size of the British ones. Yeah, I'm thinking it was just like a misfortune. Like she had just been attacked and stabbed on the street. So I'm thinking she was just a little bit out of it and thinking, I just want to get to my apartment. So she went back the way that she, like, was used to. Because normally she came straight up from the train station around the back of the building. So she headed back towards the train station to go around the building. Yeah, that makes sense. Especially It's just an unfortunate mishap, I guess. Yeah, because you never know how you're going to react. Right. When you get stabbed in the back by a strange man. Yeah, so whether she knew it... We don't know for sure if she knew that the call box was there or not. If anything, she might have just been trying to get off the street, too. We'll just assume... And into the stairwell. Yeah. We'll just assume she knew because it was a big yeah. blue box. Uh, yeah. And she lived on that street. So right, exactly. Probably she had to have seen it, yeah. So I think that was just, like, a misfortunate part of the story. Yeah. Is that she went the opposite direction. Another myth is that nobody called the police until Carl Ross did at the last minute. But that's not exactly true. In a New York Post article called Debunking the Myth of Kitty Genovese, it states a 14-year-old boy named Michael Hoffman heard the screams and looked out the window. He then went to his father Samuel and told him what he saw. Samuel called the police and after a few minutes on hold told them a woman got beat up and was staggering around. He gave them the address and hung up. The police, however, never responded to this call. What? That's like their whole job. (laughs) In the documentary The Witness, Bill Genovese, Kitty's younger brother, goes over the crime and interviews witnesses. A woman named Hattie Grun tells Bill that she did call the police after hearing a woman screaming for help. But before she could even finish her statement, the police told her, we've already gotten the calls. And you're still not doing anything Right. About it? Wait, okay, with that two-minute response time? That's what I was about <laughs> to say. Where's the two minutes? Right. 
You so, mean the average time is 30 minutes. <laughs> so in the 60s, incoming calls to the police station were started by asking people their name and address. Grun believes it's not that people didn't call, but that they were cut off and told it was already being handled without the police knowing the severity of the situation. So I'm thinking with, so with Samuel, uh, he called the police and he said a woman got beat up and was struggling around, but he, he didn't know, like, she had been stabbed. Right. And so I'm thinking other people just saw that, they're like, oh, hey, there's some sort of brawl going on, or this woman looks like she needs help, maybe, and the police were like, eh, she's probably just drunk. And so then when they, when they got new calls of people being like, she's screaming, she got stabbed, they cut them off. They're like, oh, we already got the call. Oh, no, they so just, they didn't get all the information. Yeah, they didn't know, like, the severity of the situation. Cool. <laughs> Another thing is that police asking for so much information at the start of a call, maybe the reason other people didn't call in. They didn't want to be like, here's my name, here's my address, and all of that. But, I mean, they still do that now. When you call 911, they say, 911, what's your emergency? And then you, oh, well, yeah, I guess they you tell what's them. your emergency. Yeah, I and guess... then they'll ask you your location, or yeah, or they can also trace your phone. So never mind. Like it says you're on the corner of whatever. I'm just a dumb bitch. Never mind. <laughs> you also don't have to give your name to 911. That's true. You can be an you honest caller. Yeah, but back then they started with what's your name and address. Yeah, yeah. So if other people did call in. The police failed to log it because when Bill Genevieve looked at the call logs, he couldn't find any other phone calls that uh, okay. that people had called in. But I believe that Hattie Grun's phone call also wasn't in the logs, even really? though she swears that she called. But they cut her off, so then they might not have even written her name down because they quote already got the calls. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So while it was advertised that a large group of people saw a woman getting stabbed and did nothing, that isn't the fact. Unfortunately, the two people who actually did see part of the attack, the doorman across the street and Carl Ross, failed to aid Kitty in her time of need. So if you look at the map I sent you, you can see where all the witnesses were and where the attacker's car was parked and like basically traces her whole step, shows you that where the police call box was and the entrance to her building and all of that. So you can see basically she came up from the parking lot where the first attack was and then she turned around and went back around the building into the stairwell where the second attack was. She was so close at the first attack to the call box. Yeah. It's not drawn perfectly to scale, but I'm pretty sure it's like but I mean, mostly com- accurate. Right, compared to right. going around, like she was like ha- she was halfway to the call box basically. Yeah. It just makes it sadder too because she could have attempted to call for help. At least if, if you call on a police call box, they're most likely I would think would show up, even if you can't really get all the words out because she'd just been attacked, but You would think you would think, would they? <laughs> I don't know, the 1960s. Yeah. Okay, let's get into suspects. At first, Katie's girlfriend, Mary Ann Zalanka, was considered a suspect. Mary Ann had been completely unaware of the attack until police came pounding on her door at around 4 a.m. to let her know what had happened. Arriving with them was a still drunk Carl Ross who rushed to comfort her, bringing a bottle of liquor with him. He's a disaster. <laughs> I'm just gonna say it. <laughs> He's chugging whiskey. He literally, like, came behind the police and was like, I got you, and, like, brought a bottle of liquor with him. And I was like, but you didn't help her girlfriend that just got murdered. But like, you didn't got Kitty. Yeah, like, <laughs> but you didn't got Kitty. <laughs> but don't worry, he got the alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I was focused on other things. <laughs> police questioned Mary Ann extensively, at first curious where she had been during the attack, but eventually changing the questions to her personal life with Kitty. In the 1960s, being gay was still illegal in New York, and the police were curious to know why two grown women were living in a one-bedroom apartment together. Marianne told them that that's all they could afford and continued to evade their questions, but after six hours, she finally caved and told the police they had been lovers. 
satisfied that she wasn't hiding anything else, she was no longer considered a suspect. I like how the police were like, where are you, where were you at two in the morning? Fucking sleeping. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? Like, where were you at two in the morning? Not here. All right. <laughs> Marianne said that telling them about her and Kitty's relationship was her biggest mistake because they didn't need to know. Marianne was taken to the morgue to identify Kitty's body and sat with her a while after claiming, I want to wait for her. I don't want her to be alone. Marianne slept with one of Kitty's shirts for a long time after her death. Having few real witnesses and ruling the ones they had out along with Marianne, the police's trail began to go cold. In the podcast Once Upon a Crime, they report that on March 18th, five days after Kitty's attack, a man named Raul Cleary witnessed a thin, light-skinned man carrying a TV out of a neighbor's house and put it in the, and putting it in the back of his car. Cleary hollered to the man, What are you doing in the banister's house? To which he responded, It's okay, I'm helping them move. Raul then asked another neighbor, Jack Brown, Are the banisters moving? And he replied, No. Cleary went inside to call the police as Brown walked over to the man's white Corvair. Jack Brown then popped the hood and removed the distributor cap so that his car wouldn't start when he tried to leave. A few moments later, the intruder emerged, got in his car, and realizing it wouldn't start, calmly exited the vehicle and began walking down the street. He remained calm as two officers pulled up beside him and got out to question him. Back at the police station, the man told officers his name was Winston Mosley. I'm gonna show you a picture of him. That's him. Some crazy hair. Mm-hmm. He looked crazy, no he? Just his hair. His hair's just a little... I don't know, he got some crazy eyeballs. That's true, yeah, look he at, did. Like, look at his face. Okay, you convinced me. He looks a little crazy. <laughs> Good, that's all I wanted. <laughs> Confirmation. Mosley was 28 years old, married, had a steady job, and no priors. He was currently raising a toddler of his own along with his baby nephew. As police began to question him, he admitted to everything involving the burglary. Mosley told police that his father owned a TV repair shop, and he would steal TVs and other small appliances to give to him. Eventually, he admitted to committing around 30 to 40 robberies, but the officer still felt that there was something off about him, that he was too calm for a small-time burglar. It dawned on the officer that Mosley's car, a white Corvair, could match the description given by witnesses earlier on at the Kitty Genevieve scene, and he called in the homicide detectives on her case. Detectives Sang and Carol questioned Mosley about where he was the night Kitty was killed. Then Detective Carol grabbed Mosley's hand and held it up to the light. There were small cuts on his fingers, and he asked them where they'd come from. I scratched them while working around the house, Mosley stated. No, you got those cuts while stabbing Kenny Genovese. Mosley confessed to killing Kitty and laid out the entire tale for the detectives. Winston Mosley had woken up at about 2 a.m. on March 13th and left his house in search of a victim. He admitted that he went out that night looking to rape and kill a woman. As he drove along, he saw Kitty in her red Fiat and decided to follow her home. To the detective's surprise, Mosley then confessed to raping and killing two other women. According to an article written in the New York Times, he stabbed and sexually assaulted 15-year-old Barbara Kralik the previous year on July 20th. On February 29th, 12 days before Kitty's murder, he attacked Annie Mae Johnson, a crime someone else had already confessed to and was due to stand trial for the next week. Once Upon a Crime reports that Mosley parked behind Annie as she was getting out of her car, jumped out, and shoved a short-barreled 22 rifle into her stomach. She handed Mosley her purse, and he shot her in the stomach. As she fell, he shot her three or four more times. He then tried to drag her into her house, but wasn't strong enough, being a mere 5'8 and 120 pounds, so he ended up rolling her into her living room. There, he raped her as her family slept upstairs. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Isn't he a nice guy? Was that was that his first kill or Um no, the first kill was a fifteen year old girl. That was oh, okay. When he finished, he realized Annie was still breathing. He surrounded her body with newspaper and attempted to light her on fire. In her house? Yes, in her house. <laughs> god. With all the other people upstairs? <laughs> yeah. I don't think he cares. <laughs> okay. I'm just making sure. <laughs> 
to clarify. As it turned out, due to the condition of her burnt body, the coroner had mistaken the bullet holes for stab wounds from an ice pick. They exhumed Annie's body and found six 22 caliber slugs in her stomach. On June 8, 1964, Mosley's trial began for the murder of Kenny Genovese. Mosley pled not guilty, and his lawyer later changed the plea to not guilty by reason of insanity. The New York Times reports that Dr. Oscar K. Diamond, director of Manhattan State Hospital on Ward's Island, testified on the side of the defense. He claimed Mosley was a schizophrenic with catatonic reactions beyond his control, that he was incapable of stopping himself once he got the urge to kill and thus was unable to distinguish right from wrong. However, Dr. Winkler of Kings County Hospital and Dr. Frank Casino of Wyckoff Heights Hospital both claim that Mosley was fit for trial and completely aware of his wrongdoings. Dr. Casino's quote is saying, He showed good logic, judgment, and intelligence in carrying out his plans. He had a very considerable capacity to reason. Originally, Mosley was sentenced to death. However, at his appeal hearing, his defense argued that he should have been allowed to debate with the trial court when they ruled him sane and his sentence was dropped down to life imprisonment. Mosley was granted immunity in the Andy Johnson case for testifying on the behalf of the defense that he had actually killed her and not their client, Alvin Mitchell. The case resulted in a hung jury, but Mitchell was convicted in a second trial. Even though the guy he definitely didn't do it. The guy that confessed that's now in prison. Yeah, I'm not really sure why he confessed to that, because he didn't do it, but... There's just some people, like... I'm sure we've talked about this before, but, like, some people either get, like, berated by the police. Yeah, it was the 60s. Yeah. New York. Or <laughs> they just want to take credit for it. Or they want to live in prison because maybe they'd... They live on the streets and they want yeah. somewhere to sleep or... I don't know yeah, this guy's I don't know, thing, but he but... ended up getting convicted even though Mosley confessed on the stand that he actually did it and gave, like, more detail of what happened. <laughs> and the other guy confessed to stabbing her with an ice pick even though they proved that she was shot later on. The yeah. 60s, man. Mm-hmm. Winston Mosley was sent to Attica Prison, a maximum security facility, to serve out his life sentence. That should have been the last anyone ever heard of him. It wasn't? <laughs> no. Great. On March 18th, 1968, exactly four years after he was arrested for Kitty's murder, Mosley was sent to a hospital in Buffalo due to a self-inflicted wound. On his way back, he overpowered a guard and took his gun and managed to escape. For the next five days, Winston Mosley terrorized Buffalo, New York. Breaking and entering into homes, he raped a woman and held multiple people hostage. On the last day, Mosley broke into an apartment and held a woman and her baby at gunpoint. FBI Special Agent Neil Welch was on the scene for negotiation and was able to talk Mosley down, eventually getting him to surrender. Winston Mosley returned to prison and soon after vowed to change. Right. <laughs> so does everybody that goes into mm -hmm. prison. In 1977, he received a sociology degree from inside prison and claimed that he was reformed. He was continually denied parole until he died on March 28, 2016, at the age of 81. At his time of death, he had served 52 years in prison, making him one of the longest-serving prisoners in the New York State prison system. Holy shit, he died, like, only four years ago? Yeah. That's crazy. Winston Mosley stole Kitty Genovese from the ones who loved her and the world around her. Though he did a monstrous thing, much good later came out of her tragedy. The way in which Kitty's death was aided by the inaction of others helped push forward the idea of a centralized number people could call in case of an emergency. In the late 1960s, the 911 hotline was created. Due to the nervousness of the neighbors to get involved, police began to realize if people were too scared to get involved for fear of prosecution, more cases like Kitty's could happen. Therefore, the Good Samaritan laws were put into place. These laws protect bystanders from being sued if their actions inadvertently lead to a person's injury or death. That wasn't already a thing. That seems like common sense. <laughs> yeah, no, it wasn't a thing. Uh, okay. So basically, if you got involved and and then the person died, you could be charged with like not saving them or not helping soon enough. You can still be sued, um, but the cases are really... like Those laws are meant to protect people from getting sued. Yeah. 
Like in one case, um, someone saw a car, car crash and they managed to pull the person out of the car before it exploded, but the person was paralyzed and they tried to sue them for not giving proper medical assistance. So then they amended the laws to say that you're still protected if you fail to give medical assistance. Because not everyone's a doctor. Right. Like, he didn't happen to be an EMT, but right. and also that's not what led to them being paralyzed anyways. So there's a lot of laws. It's the same thing with um, CPR. There used to be, like, people used to be able to sue you if you performed CPR on them. I want to be dead. <laughs> yeah. I want you to put your mouth on me. <laughs> yeah, they were saying it was part of, like, infringing on their right to refuse medical assistance, but that's it got tricky when you found someone unconscious and performed CPR, so then they... That, that you're protected under the Good Samaritan law in that situation. Right. Sorry for trying to save your life, bro. Right. <laughs> I'll, next time I'll just let you die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, no, those weren't already in place, but you think they would have been. Right. <laughs> I think that later led to um, you can be charged if you fail to report a crime. So, like, her drunk neighbor. Right. <laughs> right. I'm not sure if that was directly affected by this case, but there are laws against that as well. Yeah. The case of Kitty Genovese has been widely discussed ever since the tragedy took place. Shows like Perry Mason, Law and & Order, and All in the Family, amongst many others, created their own adaptations to discuss what could lead a group of people to stand by as something horrible happened. Psychologists began referring to this as the bystander effect. Essentially, the greater number of witnesses, the less likely an individual is to take action, assuming that with so many others around, the responsibility doesn't fall solely on them. No one wants to be a witness to a violent crime, but most of us like to think we take action if we were. Ask yourself, would you, or are you simply a bystander? You can find The Witness on Amazon Prime. The story follows Bill Genovese, one of Kitty's brothers, as he searches for answers in his sister's case by going back to the scene of the crime and interviewing the people who were there in his sister's final moments. Check out Once Upon a Crime's take on this case in episode 18 of their podcast. Lastly, a special shout out to the ladies on the podcast, My Favorite Murder, that got me into this case years ago in episode 24. There, they interview Kitty's brother and talk to him about the effect her death had on his life. Morbidly Intoxicated is hosted by Lily Bishop and Sarah Lawson. Recording and production by Robert Shepard. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Morbidly Intoxicated Pod for updates and photos from the cases we cover. If you liked our show, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. We'd greatly appreciate it. Theme music was written by Taylor Hertz. His website is taylorhertz, spelled T-A-Y-L-O-R, H-E-R-T-Z dot com. Artwork was done by Kelly Carroll, who you can find on Instagram at artbykelly, Kelly spelled K-E-L-L-I. Photos done by Javi Romero. His Instagram is at orangehobby. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another episode of Morbidly Intoxicated.